I think it's um, really about uh, mindset. I, I wasn't, you know, I was trying to be an athlete my youth, and I, I played ice hockey, I played different things, and then in college I got into some endurance sports. I was never really good at it at all, but uh, we did some of these multi-day races where you go multiple days with no sleep, and uh, I kind of sucked on the first day, but then on the third day I was really good. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Like, I mean, I, I was by far the least uh, conditioned person in a, in one team. And, and then, you know, they were like tracking me along for the first day and a half. And then on the second and third day, I was doing pretty well. So that was like, wow, there's something kind of, you know, in me that, you know, I can, I can keep going maybe after even the other people are, are not, not going anymore. And, uh, and then, I mean, in, in, in business, it's, it's just about, you know, like I said, putting, you know, the foot after other. And it's pretty slow. Everything happens slow. It's not like, you know, a sprint. It's always a marathon. Welcome to episode 160. My guest is Ari Tula, San Francisco-based serial entrepreneur. After years of family health struggles, Ari has helped over 100 million people gain better access to healthcare throughout his different companies. As the CEO of Quest Analytics, the market leader in doctor data and network management, he led the company through a pivotal growth stage from 15 million to 14 million USD in revenue. He co-founded and was the CEO of Better Doctor, a doctor search engine that raised 30 million USD from first-tier investors. In June 2018, Better Doctor was acquired by a private equity firm. Today is the co-founder and CEO of Hello Health, AI personalization engine delivering the exact nutrients to live better. In a previous live, Ari was head of Nokia's game and application studios here in Finland. In this episode, he shares some of his entrepreneurship journey from age 18 and how he became stronger and never gave up despite the adversities along the journey. He also admits that despite I've been over 25 years of successful entrepreneurship, he still struggles with finding himself as the bottleneck of his business. I've kept on saying it, the bottleneck is real. But enjoy the conversation to find out more. Hi Ari, thank you very much for joining me. I know it's very early in the morning for you in the US. Hey, hey Laurent, uh, great to be here. So it's very funny because you are Finnish guy in the US and I'm a French guy in Finland. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really funny when we first connected. I was uh, I was laughing out loud. <laughs> so you have a very interesting journey. Uh, you studied it at the age of 18. And I'm talking about your entrepreneurial journey here. So back at the age of 18, that was 1999 in a small Finnish city called Basa. Well, you were a student. Then you went into the corporate life. You worked for BAT, Nokia. You left somewhere along the way. You moved to the US. I'm not sure when. Then you created three companies, exited one. I also know that you have invested in 50 companies where, together with your wife. Some of them are doing extremely well. So that's, I mean, that's, that's quite the journey. So if you had to summarize it into one compelling lesson what would it be yeah i i have had a multiple different uh tracks and um and it's been a it's been a really fun journey so far i'm uh, mm. i'm 45 today so i'm kind of in a in the middle age i think that i mean i hope okay. not but you know <laughs> in an average as it is <laughs> maybe even yeah. later 
but um, I think the one one lesson I have had is that um, you just keep need to keep going. Um, I I really like what Nike did back in the days and said that just do it. I mean that's a really mm-hmm. great uh, concept because if you if you stop doing if you procrastinate nothing will happen. But if you keep putting the foot after another, you're actually going to get somewhere. And uh, that's always uh, what I try to do. When things get hard, as they always do, when things don't go in the right way, or when you get into adversity, then you just need to be keep going. And I mean, I'm not, maybe not a great example in a way that I don't really give up easily. So I used to have, uh, uh, I met the Nike, one designer at Nike who was designing the, the sneakers. And he was leading the Nike ID, the Nike uh, customized line. And uh, I was a roommate with him in a one event, maybe a TED conference or somewhere. And, and he, uh, heard about my, my story and, uh, kind of the don't give up mentality. And he sent me Nike suits that had like Nike ID and they were named by name. And at the, at the soul or somewhere it says, one suit says never, another one says give up. And then he kept sending me those suits for many years. So I had, you know, I don't know, a dozen of pairs of suits that so, say never give up. When you, nice. you, one of them was like you walk on the snow and you take steps or sand and it says never give up on every footstep. So th- <laughs> that, that, that was a funny one that kind of reminding you about the importance of, uh, of doing, doing things that way. But also, I mean, I don't think not, not giving up at all is a wrong thing to do. You also always need to also know let, to let go sometimes. Right, right. Uh, that's interesting. And I will come back, come back to that when, when to give up. And you're talking about, because you live in the US and the mentality in the US is a lot about hustling. So when you say, when you say never give up, are you talking about that? Or are you making a difference between never give up and, you know, the hustle culture? I mean, I don't know. The, the hustle um, is a little bit, uh, related to this idea of like growth hacking and and mm-hmm. these things so i i don't think you know hustle has a negative connotation in a way that it's something kind of uh, not permanent but uh it's in a time box you do something and you kind of do it but you might not have done it in a in a most ethical manner or in a right way because in the end when you when you do this for a long time and i've been now doing this almost 25 years uh you everything you do will come back to you. There's no way to, you know, do stupid stuff and then, you know, get get away with it. You you have to be stand up, you have to have the right ethics. Uh and I mean hustle and the growth hacking feels like you are you are not not selling to the customer in the right way or you are not treating the people you work with in the right way. Because if you hustle in a way, somebody's always the hustled. <laughs> that's kind of yeah. the if you go to Vegas, that's kind of how I would uh, read it and then you know somebody will feel that they are uh, they didn't get what they wanted or they didn't get what they deserved and that's the wrong thing to do and um, it's interesting the way I, I, we talk about this not not specifically about this topic but we talk about the idea that longevity and and uh, and kind of the, the how you behave matters a lot and um, I'm mm-hmm. super lucky to have you know the same co-founder now for time or third time having you know a couple of you know team members who are vital people in the team who are now working for me in a, in a fourth company already and i mean that's pretty cool to me because you know that's longevity and that's really like you know bonding with people and making work to be something more than just work it becomes a life yeah and it's kind of a testament to your 
leadership skills, I guess. I don't know about that, but then at least, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been hustling them. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your secret to never give up? Because as an entrepreneur, sometimes, you know, you want to. It's easy. Yeah, it, that. It's, it's, I think it's um, really about uh, mindset. Um, mm. And um, I'm a, I, I wasn't, you know, I was trying to be an athlete my youth and I, I played ice hockey, I played different things and then in college, I got into some endurance sports. I was never really good at it at all. But uh, we did some of these multi-day races where you go multiple days with no sleep. And uh, I kind of sucked on the first day. But then on the third day, I was really good. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Like, I mean, I, I was by far the least uh, conditioned person in, a, in one team. And, and then, you know, they were like tracking me along for the first day and a half. And then on the second and third day, I was doing pretty well. So that was like, wow, there's something kind of, you know, in me that, you know, I can, I can keep going maybe after even the other people are, are not, not going anymore. And then, I mean, in, in, in business, it's, it's just about, you know, like I said, putting, you know, the foot after other, and it's pretty slow. Everything happens slow. It's not like, you know, a sprint. It's always a marathon. Mm. And, um, and I, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot and I, I've, I've been reading quite a bit. It's just, you know, last few years about these feats of endurance of man and woman and uh, it's on the top of my mind because i just yesterday i i watched the the movie anayat which is the mm -hmm. the woman who was i think 65 and she swam from cuba to florida yeah. and nobody had ever done it before people had tried and it's it's unbelievably difficult to swim 104 miles but also have being open also you know, currents and conditions of weather and sharks and all sort of stuff and um, I did it after I don't fifth try or something, and and then I was uh, I was just reading a book from uh, David uh, Goggins, and and he is this sort of like you know maybe the fittest person in the world who had a horrible upbringing, really tough childhood in every possible way, almost like torture, and then he became this machine in a way, and then he became an ultra runner, he became a navy seal. He experienced a lot. So, I mean, those stories are, of course, very different than in business. We are not, you know, cutthroat or about to die. But I believe that there's something in that world where we're going to be going all in, in, uh, in endurance sports, for example, that you can learn something about yourself that you didn't know before. And um, the last, I don't know, almost decade, I've been uh, doing this uh, Japanese thing that uh, once a year you do something really big and difficult, like, a, I mean, it could be a, activity or it could be something else it, it started i don't know a thousand years ago when uh, some monks they started to go once a year into the cold waterfall and they went under it in the winter and they stayed like 25 minutes until you're almost almost dead uh, under a cold waterfall ice around you and uh, that is called misogi and uh, now it's this sort of a concept uh, that you know people talk about and i i read, read about it a long time ago and then i started to do it once a year and and last year, I was uh, first time I failed my misogi, and I, I didn't know what to think about it. But um, I, I picked. Oh, oh, uh, what did you try to do last year? So I, I, I mainly done like yeah, different uh, type of like endurance things, and uh, I, yeah. I've been doing like I walked one year hundred and hundred plus miles in a weekend. So barely walked like fifty hours straight, not sleeping. Yeah. Uh, one year we did uh, we waded the river, so we was we swam in the river for like thirty kilometers or something. Uh, and of course, miles in a walk, 160 miles, 160 kilometers of walking a, a, a weekend is a long walk. Yeah, and, uh, you know, then I was, I, I was climbing, you know, El Capitan and, and in, mm -hmm. uh, in Yosemite. 
never finished completely, but you know, done parts of it. But yeah, last year I wanted to do, uh, I've been cycling a lot lately mm. and uh, I wanted to bike uh, 500 kilometers in 36 hours. And I was right on the pace, but, um, but you know, a bit, bit over halfway point, my, my knee buckled. And it wasn't like biking uh, on a flatland. I was biking uh, and, and I was planning to do all the hills in the Bay Area. So it was about uh, 10,000 meters of climbing on a bike and 500 kilometers. So like, like, like the double to the France biggest states in a day. And, uh, and I'm out of view it, but you know, it was, it was really cool to try. And I mean, not many people have done that because, you know, cycling is something that, you know, you can go, anyone can go 200 kilometers, but when you go 500 and you add the uphills, it, it gets pretty difficult. But those are kind of things that, I mean, I, I mean, kind of callousing my mind in a way or making my mind, uh, you know, to be able to tolerate more because the fact is that, you know, you learn it in endurance, the uh, sports that, you know, you can go much further than you can think yeah. of. And same thing, I think, applies to, to business. You know, when everybody else is like, what can we do now? I mean, you always, you can always find a way. And it's just about, you know, spending the time. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, I've talked to many entrepreneurs now, and I strongly believe that entrepreneurship is a mindset. And, you know, the, 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 the best entrepreneurs are not better because they have, you know, better skills than others. They, they have a better mindset. Like, you say they don't give up. They try and try and try. They fail and they try again. But sometimes you have to give give up. This is what you were saying earlier. So when do you know it's time to give up? Well, I think it's that's also so about what you want to do. I mean, you have to have, of course, you you can't be super stubborn and have this kind of mm. very very you know powerful mindset to go through the stone and the wall. I and mean, that's very Finnish way to think about it. Because uh, in Finland, we talk about the Sisuen. I mean, I don't know if we have any Sisu left, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like, it's almost the same as, you know, I mean, I've been, I, I grew up in northern Finland and, you know, I, I did these things that, you know, I was Nordic skiing and competing, for example, in my youth. And um, the Sisu was always there. We talked about it. And then when you move to the U.S. and I, I lived now in the U.S. for 16 years in California, very different, like mm. not Sisu, it's more like a sun and, you know, beep stuff place yeah. but there here we talk all about the equality and we talk about the opportunity i mean america is the land of opportunity and that's complete bullshit now i mean like there's way less opportunity in the u.s if you are born poor and in the wrong place or wrong color you have way more opportunity in finland for example if you are born poor and maybe even in you know, a different color so we have this mindset in the u.s that you know this is the land of opportunity. Yes, it maybe was, you know, a generation ago, but no longer. And and those are the kind of things that stick. And then in Finland, I think we take the CISO a bit too uh, literally, and we, we believe in it as a concept. Mm. And then we we are not we don't have we are too stubborn. Being CISO, having a CISO is not like being stubborn. It's not the same thing. So you always have to think about like where do you want to go in life? What do you want to do? And sometimes, you know, there's a time to do something. And, uh, you know, I spent, uh, you know, all five years at Nokia that took me to the U.S. Um, when I was building a, a, building a new unit in the U.S., I, I came to, to build it here in the Bay Area. And um, then, you know, I spent 10 years, almost nine and a half years, I think, on the, on the doctor uh, or healthcare discovery access front. I built Better Doctor, and then I was building Quest Analytics, uh, but for me, I mean, decade was a long time. I mean, that's, you know, maybe 10th of your life. And um, I didn't want to 
do that anymore. That's why I was investing in other companies. That's why I was looking for other type of companies, maybe advising or being a board member. And I felt that, you know, I, I want to do something different. And, yeah. and that's why in the end left, I could have probably stayed. Maybe, you know, the company is still running strong and, you know, we are, we are close to hundred revenue now. And, uh, you know, they will like to go public at some point, but, you know, some people would have stayed and, you know, like really want to get the, the flag on your, on your resume that, you know, you de- took a company public yourself and, you know, you go to ring the bell in NASDAQ. I mean, that's pretty cool, but that was not at all, you know, what I wanted to do. I wanted to build new companies. I, I must rather be in the zero to, let's say 30, not zero to one, but 30 a million uh, revenue yeah. space. Yeah. That's, I know, I know that well, I can do that really well, but I'm not the guy who necessarily wants to run the, Two hundred fifty million dollar company, and you know, have a thousand employees. That doesn't make, doesn't give me anything. I mean, it just takes the, um, takes my ability away to work on things that I really care about. I mean, do I care about politics and the the everyday grind of that? So that's not me. I mean, most people, if you take a you know public company CEO, you put them in my position to build a new company from scratch. They could do nothing. They don't have any of the skills. Their skills are very different. It's, I mean, yeah. they're valuable skills. But they don't have the skills. And I was, I felt that I was losing my skills that I'm the best at. I've been honing all my life, which is what you need in the beginning of a company. I feel like uh, what you're talking about is uh, it um, encompasses a lot of self-awareness. You have to know yourself very well to understand when it's time to give up. So that's what you're saying between the lines. Yeah, I think you, I mean, that that's of course another key. And of course also in in being, you know, uh, the never give up mentality, you also need to know you because, mm. I mean, how many people go too far? How many people burn out? I mean, there's exactly. a lot of talk lately about, you know, and books written about the entrepreneurship, uh, the idea that, you know, people, it's so cool and sexy. And, you know, we have yeah. many people who become entrepreneurs who have no idea what it is. And then they, they quit very quickly and, and they get uh, scars for the rest of their lives about it. Because people think like the VCs are sarks and then they blame, you know, the system or they blame mm-hmm. the CEO. A lot of people write about the CEOs are these sarks and there's this new movement about bootstrapping companies being like this new thing. Come on, like that's the way people did every company before. It was <laughs> yeah. And VCs are just a vehicle among others. Yeah. It's like you, you can't blame the bank if you take a too big of a mortgage and you lose a job and you lose the house. It's not yeah. the bank's fault. Come on, dude. So I think, you know, we, we don't take, you know, accountability today in the world. We, we suck at it. And even the U.S., like, you know, people talk about this bootstrapping yourself up, like take from the bootstraps. Come on. That's the language. People are so weak and, 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 and so sensitive today about this. So I think we really need a bit more of that sort of a, you know, mindset in the, in the world where I'm responsible for what I do. If I fail, it's my response. It's not the world or the society or my teacher or my, my spouse or my boss. It's my fault. I didn't do stuff well. Sometimes, you know, things can happen and the world can be unfair. But in, if you really look into this most times, it is your fault. And you need to do something about it. And that is kind of the, the thinking that, you know, if you understand that, uh, then I think you can go until you can't go anymore, if you know yourself. Or then you're going to quit and do something different. Because there's a million things you can do in the world. Like I was just telling my wife yesterday, that how funny is it that, you know, you know, we've been living here for so long. We are in San Francisco, like middle of this whole boom. What has happened in that time? You know, you know, I was of course involved at Nokia when we, you know, invented the, the smartphone. And then, you know, later I worked a lot of, you know, apps and stuff. So I took a advantage of the app economy, the mobile economy that made me. 
But then, you know, what has happened after uh, is all these things like cloud computing. I really haven't done much there. Uh, now the AI is happening. We are, we are deploying AI in my new company. But, you know, you don't have to be building your own company. I could have worked in, you know, every one of these companies because you have the resume to go work in any, any company you want. So yeah. I could have been at Google at the right time or I could have been at Facebook at the right time. I could have now kind of opened AI. Uh, and I haven't done that because I'm, I'm stubborn in a way. I built these own things. And it's not the, really the way to make money. I have plenty of friends of mine who have made a lot of money, a lot more money by, by working in these big companies at the right time to go early enough and then crawl like a hockey stick. Um, and they have more impact than probably I can have ever now because if you are in Google today and you are maybe like SVP or in the management there, I mean, the impact you have is unbelievable yeah. uh, because you, you have billions of users. Mm-hmm. And, you know, building a startup and having hundreds of millions of users is very, very, very difficult to do. Almost nobody succeeds. There are a few handful of people who have ever done that. So getting to impact, the best way to get impact is to build a company and sell it to big company and, and pick a role where you can do it. Uh, that's that's a fact of life. It's, it's you know, especially our, our generation, because we're the same generation. When we when we started, there was no possibility to, to build companies as big as Google today because the internet was not there there yet and so that you know that the new generation the digital digitalization of the economy has created uh, such opportunities to scale to scale up another word i'm using scaling up <laughs> but, I, but we, I think uh, just a quick cover there i think yeah. know, we do have we do have you know um i'm living in the place where you do have multiple generations of this because it started here it all started right yes. here you know, yeah. the Intels of the world were the first companies and they were funded by venture capitalists. The venture capitalist idea was invented, you know, 20 miles away from here. So in a way, he, this is the only place in the world where you actually have, you can talk to somebody who is 80 and they were venture capitalists and they were investing in companies and, you know, um, like, you know, one guy who I, I know, he was investor of the Hamilton, Hamilton Packard HP. And I'm, I was sitting once in a room in a, here few years ago and i had the mr hevlet and mr puckard you know were sitting there with me in the room i mean those are the founders of that company hp <laughs> and how many people remember that it's you know it's mm. six to seven years old but uh, that to me was really cool that you know this is the place where you have that but in finland and europe i mean this is very new this is really we are the first generation who is now kind of seeing the fruits of this true and in finland i've been meeting so many people who came like you uh, like yourself came out of uh, nokia I mean, it must have been quite uh, a journey when you guys were at Nokia during the when Nokia created the the mobile phone. I remember my first mobile phone was uh, was this Nokia. It was unbreakable. <laughs> you guys must have had like a you know great time working there. I did some the movie that came out or the TV series five series uh, uh, was it no, Mobile One Hundred One or something like that in in the US. Mm. Uh, really good. I mean, uh, I mean that's of course way before my time. Uh, that was the beginning when Nokia went from being, uh, you know, pu- paper pulp company and, you know, TVs and stuff into the mobile world. Uh, so your model did amazing work at, you know, doing that pivot. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was there when we were the biggest company in the world of value. We were $350 billion company, I believe. It was the number one company in the whole world at the value yeah. at that time. And uh, I mean, it was very interesting. And, uh, I mean, later looking at it, I mean, we should have been much more humble about it. But you never know when you're writing history, when you are doing it. 
that's what you know Obama has said many times that people asked him you know right after his term or during he was president that you know what is the thing that you you're gonna be remembered for and uh, he always said that you know let the history write itself I mean it's hard to know and uh, when you now look at the the stories uh, unfortunately I think we're gonna have a Trump who might be a second time president soon. Uh, who will have you take um, an encyclopedia if we have those in the future you take it and mm-hmm. Obama might have you know a few pages and Trump will have five pages so Trump will be in history probably more notable person than Obama who was doing unbelievable thing you know on breaking the barriers of you know race and, and different things and mm-hmm. I mean I think he was a great orator but he didn't get much done as a president but Trump again is like a big mess and people like to write about that so that's an interesting thing. Like, what is what is the important thing? But yeah, Nokia was um, was a huge thing for Finland, and I think the, the Nokia had a quite a good team. I mean, there was a lot of good people, a lot of good engineering talent that was at Nokia. Uh, not only from Finland, but you know, it, and it made Finland much more open place. You know, Finland was a very different place when I I, I started studying in '98, uh, 2000. Uh, I went to study in the US for one semester. And uh, I was one of the few people who had done that from from Vasa. I mean, it was the first ones ever uh, from there to go to U.S. Uh, there were a couple of people from Helsinki, Kaupunkikolo, and um, and then you know I think Alto now before it was Helsinki Yliopisto, who who had done that before. But you know nobody went to U.S. to study. People had come to Europe a lot because mm-hmm. U.S. is tough because you had to pay you know thirty thousand dollar tuition every year, and they they did a deal where you know they took us for free. Uh, and the universities were really, really poor. Like, uh, I mean, really bad. <laughs> I mean, it was like laughable almost. But, you know, yeah. I wanted to go there or he come here because, you know, I wanted to kind of experience the, the different world. And then, you know, I realized that, you know, the people were not very good at all. So, I mean, I I felt that, you know, coming from Finland, you know, you are totally equal or better than, you know, uh, being in the U.S. Mm. And for, for people who listen to us who are not familiar with uh, Finland, Finland is a country of 5.5 million people only, so it's very small. It's a very small country. So Nokia was at that at the golden age was absolutely huge in comparison to the country. When we uh, say about say about what's happening now, in it's interesting that you know if you look at Nordic countries um, now yeah. in Denmark, Denmark never really has had like anything big. They've been this sort of very uh, stable economy with a lot of multiple different industries. You know they have the design industry and so forth. And now they have a company, Novo Nordisk, that is more valuable than Nokia was at the heyday. Of course, we can take the inflation, but I think still today, if you take the inflation, Novo is more valuable than Nokia was ever. And what mm. happened now in, in Denmark, they're talking about this same thing. Are we going to have the Nokia problem? Are we, what we do? They're looking at the playbook from Finland on what could they do. And uh, the funny thing is that, you know, they last, you know, just a few months ago, a month ago, uh, the country gave a, a profit warning that they have too much tax income. I mean, I don't think any country has ever done that before. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the government was, because I think it's like uh, they pay a lot of tax into 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 Denmark on profit. And I think there's yeah. also some linkage on owning. I think the government maybe owns some of it. But anyway, they were getting too much money from the company, so they had to like uh, scale up the tax base. So they had too much tax coming uh-huh. in. Wow. I imagine the French government doing the same. Not... <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, first met, uh, you mentioned something interesting. You said it's important to look at the breaking point. Can you clarify what you are talking about? Yeah, so there's, of course, I mean, I, 
often talk about uh, when talk, people ask me about you know kind of business. I mean, I often talk about a few things. I talk about funnels. Um, mm-hmm. you, you you run many part of business in funnel perspective. So you have a marketing funnel, sales funnel, hiring funnel, even like you know engineering funnel could be one word to use. So those are kind of ways how you manage these different threats. Um, and then also you you need to have you know plan setting. I like you know OKRs and uh, and and that type of method where you set goals every quarter and then you set annual goals. You break the big problems into small pieces and you make them understandable. But the, but the breaking points I think are more about the, the company growth. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of people in you know Finland for example, and and Europe fewer people I think than here who have actually built companies in a way that you go from the you know two people the founders you go to the you know 50 to 70 people or maybe even 30 to 50 people when you have to change the way you operate you have to add you know management layers you have to, you can't do everything yourself you need to have a leadership team and then when you go from that into you know to 200 to 500 people you have these breaking points there that you know you need to build another layer of management because it's just in a way you you, you can't have too many people reporting to you I mean, yes, we can hear that Elon Musk had, has like, I don't know, 35 people reporting to him or whatever. I, that's bullshit. Like, I mean, you can't do it that way. I mean, are you saying No, but I mean, pe- people are just, you know, nobody will get the time. I mean, you have to have unbelievably good people who can... Yeah, people have to be able to kind of very self... I mean, I think the people who are reporting to him probably are, are super good people. But normally, I think, you know, there has to be coaching, there has to be management, there has to be this sort of, uh, you know, cultivation. And, you know, if you have more than eight, nine people reporting to you, uh, that's pretty difficult. And mm-hmm. it's been interesting when, you know, we had those breaking points at um, at Better Doctor and, and, and Quest. And of course, at Nokia, you know, I, I saw the same thing when we had, you know, these big organizations where you, we had 130,000 people at Nokia. And it was like, you know, are we going to be a matrix? Or are we going to be, you know, some type of other organization? A lot of debate about that. I don't think anyone knows. It, it's a flavor. Uh, but But my point is that, you need to be very careful when you go to the fifty people and you're gonna be seventy five people. You can you can you can raise a lot of money and then suddenly you realize that you get less done. A lot of companies they are they have forty people they're super efficient. They have great people, great motivation. Then they raise a big round of funding, they hire forty more people, they are suddenly eighty people, and then the board is asking you, you the CEO, the founder, what's going on? Like I mean, the velocity hasn't increased. And then you go back and look at the data, you look at, you know, output, input, and you realize that we have not done anything more. We have done less now, and we have doubled our people. Like, what the hell happened? And that's a very common problem. And, I mean, extreme example, of course, on this is uh, the Nokia's uh, uh, Symbian platform. So when I was Nokia, we were building on the Symbian mainly. We also had the MIMO and Migo, uh, the Linux-based system. But Symbian was, um, I think we had about two to 3,000 engineers working on the Symbian. And then, you know, we have a Android who comes and eats our lunch, and they had 70 people, 7-0, think about it. And they were able to build the platform far superior. Yeah. So number of people doesn't really matter. I think, you know, if you have the 10 best people in tech, uh, if you're building code, I mean, they can outperform 1,000 people easy. This show is about cracking entrepreneur bottlenecks. So I'm, I'm curious, what is one of your current bottlenecks? I think... Uh, of course, you as a founder uh, or the leaders in a company often become bottlenecks if they if they can't delegate, if they can't give responsibility for the team, and um, that is, I think, to me the the most common problem. People want to 
you know, they want to keep the keep holding the Legos for too long. Use it, use it, share the Legos, and let other people yeah. play. Yeah. Because most of often you are not as good as the team you have who are dedicated experts. And I think the the b- biggest problem as a founder is that you know you often tend to be good at something, and you you might not know exactly what your what are you good at. You might have a feeling, or you know that you are really really good at something like coding or you could be a really good design or product. Maybe you're a product manager at you know, big companies and you learn a lot. And then you become a CEO and then you know you, you are the product manager, for example. And then later you hire people and it, it gets messy. You have maybe have two products and nobody can you know run that. So then you need to give the Lego to somebody else and people often do it too late and they cause a lot of pain. And often you know, many people come and go. If you see... You know that you are hiring a third product manager, and you are like, "Why do these people leave?" Maybe you le- need to look in a mirror. And mm-hmm. for me personally, I think one thing that I I was just talking about with my team, and I think I realized that I was causing a bottleneck for no reason uh, because I'm I have a I've been cultivating a network here for 15, 16 years around the valley, mm-hmm. and I also have a pretty good network in Europe and and also in New York and and some in Asia. So. And the investment has helped a lot because I've been looking at you know a few thousand companies and talk to them and um, and also you know been helping pretty deeply some of the companies. So I have a, a network of people that I mean, I don't know, I know a few thousand people maybe, and um, I I often connect and often use the network as a benefit when we are building something new. And mm-hmm. I often tend to start the conversation and then you know loop in my team, but uh, I think I need to do more in a way. I just give it to my team. The, the connection and then let them run with it because it's, if you are you have to be part of every conversation it gets like I get too many emails I get too much in a mess that you know I need to be involved so I and of course because it's kind of I feel it's my relationship so I feel that I need to be involved so I'm I, I'm involved in few too many things in that front I think mm. and another point of the bottleneck I think for for me is that you know I I try to operate in a way that I on a daily basis you know I my task is to delegate find really good people who can do the work and give people, point them a direction. That's what, what I need to do. And of course, I would supp- suppose I need to give money in the bank so we don't run out of money. That's also important. But um, that's a given fact. Uh, but I mean, the point, how to do that. So I spend, I, I don't allow to do it, but I spend almost every morning uh, on unblocking. So I start the morning by going through, you know, messages and emails and whatever we have and, and try to unblock everybody. And I, I do that two or three times a day. I just mm-hmm. look at them and then I unblock. And then often if I need to do, like write, you know, bigger emails or communicate to people, I often do that late at night and uh, or at, in the evening when people are kind of off already. But really it's more like, you know, I, I do a lot of meetings on different things, a bit too many, I think now. Zoom is too easy. Uh, mm. to kind of book on a calendar. Calendly and all those tools, they make it difficult because people can kind of, you can't control your time as well. I don't have an assistant now. Um, I want to have a better AI assistant. I have a somewhat okay, but it's not great. But the point, point that, you know, if you unlock your team uh, every, you know, maybe few hours, then you know that uh, time won't be wasted because it sucks if you have five people, you know, waiting for you to make a decision and do nothing. That's a sick. Yeah. It's interesting that even after 25 years of experience, you still face the bottlenecks. <laughs> I think that, yeah, that's, that's there's no, I mean, and, and it's about organization. Like, you know, I mean, the, when I left um, left Quest um, uh, and moved into board role, 
um, I think now almost five, four, four, five, four years ago. I had a rounds. I wanted to collect a memo for the new CEO. He's a great guy. He's much, much better at, you know, 50 to 250 million. He, he, has, mm. he can do that. I mean, no, no sweat. He's really great. Really I wanted to give him a memo um, of well, how I think. And uh, I went to talk to every employee. Uh, I couldn't do it one-on-one because we had uh, almost 500 people at the time. But um, we had the groups of like four or five people. And I met, met everybody over the last, you know, quarter. And uh, it was so eye-opening because there were a lot of people I, have, I had never met before. Uh, yeah. or never spoken to them before. And because they knew that I'm leaving, I, I, I was able to make it completely uh, okay to talk your mind. And I think the word went out that you, know, you can talk your mind. And uh, it was more eye-opening uh, than ever before. And I was like, man, I should have done that in the beginning. Uh, because, you know, people told me about the bottlenecks, the issues we had, and why can't we move faster? And then I, you know, wrote this memo. Uh, it turned out to be pretty long. And I don't think the the new guy even read it, uh, but mm. uh, it was good for me to do it because it gave me a lot of clarity and it uh, taught me a lot about uh, my leadership style and how people perceive me because I'm a bit of an oddball, you know. I'm I'm from, you know, this strange country of Finland, and you know, uh, I mean, I'm also like you know this this California dude who is surfing and climbing mountains and doing stuff that most people don't even think about, and you know, vacationing in some odd islands in Tahiti or whatever I do. So I'm a bit bit of an oddball to people. And uh, and there's, of course, I learned a lot about this uh, that is linking to the bottlenecks, which is you are a founder, but, you know, I was turned into a CEO because we were running a much bigger play. And there's a lot of uh, this sort of, a, I don't know, clout of a CEO. And I, I mean, I've known it for a long time, but uh, it's like a mystical thing. And... Uh, I hadn't really embraced that concept, and I didn't hadn't thought about what it means, how you need to behave. It's very, very difficult to be a CEO in a bigger organization and to be seen as somebody um, who is not intimidating. And my goal is never to le- lead with uh, fear, but there's a lot of fear. And um, but then, if you lose the fear completely, how do you then rally up the troops? And I always want to lead from the front. I'm, I'm always there. And I'm always willing to do more than other people. That's what I always try to do. And that you learn in a, in a Finnish army. I went to army in the northern, in Lapland, in Finland. And, you know, we were out in the, in the wild for a long time and small teams, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. And I, I became a leader, even if I wasn't a leader, because I, I, I didn't want to stay there. I had, I had another thing to do after I was going abroad. So I couldn't stay too long. So I ended up being not the leader and I was being pulled, you know, every, you know, every week in the beginning to you know become like a leader trainee and then i didn't do it because i had the time box not to do it and i made mistake later in the long term would be fun to do it but you know i became a leader without being the leader and that that was a good uh, moment for me when i was a young kid already that you know hey there's something in you nice we are going to conclude on those uh, words of uh, wisdom you're not born a leader you become one <laughs> that's what that's what you say Thank you. Thank you very much, Ari, for, for your time. One more question. How can people contact you? Yeah, you can find me on uh, on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active on. And um, I don't really post too much on other social mediums. I feel that uh, like Twitter and others are just too toxic at the moment. There's, it, it, it seeps energy. It doesn't give you energy. And uh, and if you want to follow, you know, today my current company is called uh, Elo Health. 
Ilo means, of course, life in Finnish. And uh, what we do now is uh, we're trying to convert food from the cause of disease to medicine. And um, I think we are we are still at the beginning of it. I mean, it's a long haul. This might take a decade. We are in the third year. And uh, now for the first time this year um, or this month, we are starting to now take um, our products, which are, we are currently supplement product company. So we have pills and powders and gummies. We're going to go into hopefully food and meals um, sometime in the future. But um, I'm super excited that, you know, we are now taking those products first time ever into medicine and into healthcare. So we are taking them into uh, fertility treatment. We are taking them into um, the world of uh, a weight loss, uh, the CLP1 drugs that are making, you know, Denmark do wealthy. And, uh, and the new product we have, it's a super cool. I mean, I, was just, my, I have my morning thing ready here. So these are um, 3D printed gummy vitamins. So... First time ever, you know, you can actually, you can do a blood test and you get a 3D printed, you know, nutrition that is optimized mm-hmm. to you. And I find it's like really like, it's so fun to bring this learning I have had in the tech uh, for a long time, to bring it into this new, like old world of, you know, food and molecules and stuff. So it's been super fun so far, but then and this year will be a breakaway year for us. So we're going to finally kind of start fulfilling the, the manifest of, you know, uh, become food becoming medicine. And uh, that you can find a company at ELO. A lot of help. Best of luck with uh, with uh, 2024 then. And thank you again uh, for, for joining uh, me today. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new about the entrepreneur bottleneck. You can go even further or download my ebook, Eight Tactics to Strive as an Entrepreneur to tackle your bottlenecks and add on and propel your business forward. You'll find it on my website, lohanotan.com forward slash get my ebook. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.